0: the way Eastern powers have decolonized, the natural craving for them in the century to come is going to be about establishing their own theories of state. In that sense, I, in the long term, I really don't have that uh, worry that we are going farther because eventually that uh, collective will is going to manifest in a dharmic. Reason why communism did succeed is by selling a dream. It's not by showing practical changes. It did a few practical changes but it primarily sold dreams, utopias. We need to frame different questions. The way the West has framed its questions is based on its own worldview. Man has needs. Man craves happiness and these are the natural rights a man has. This is the nature of a man. Basically, there is that anthropology that is assumed when West frames its questions to arrive at institutions and our questions need to be asked differently. We need to take our worldview into consideration when we frame our questions towards designing our institutions. We know there is a natural order which is the microcosm of the cosmic order. We know there is a nature of man, man innately craves to be happy to fulfill himself then we say there are duties of state to enforce order or to ensure order is there and state has the responsibility to impose an efficient penalty and the purpose of penalty is not primarily deterrence of crime deterrence of crime is a side effect primarily king has to impose penalty because if the penalty is not imposed the criminal's paradha is going to be suffering when we synthesize knowledge, it is never a revolution, but generation of knowledge never results in a public resentment or anything, right? I mean, this is something that has to quietly happen. <music> Namaskar to the virtual assembly. We have titled this talk uh, Roadmap to Dharma Rajya for uh, Bharata. So scope, we have uh, made sure that it is very specific to Bharata. And more importantly, we have called it roadmap to Dharmarajya, which means it is not uh, an inquiry into the nature of Dharmarajya, it is not atha Dharmarajya jjnasa, but it is the jjnasa of uh, how do we go about the marga of uh, establishing a Dharmarajya. Uh, so in, in a sense, it is a continuation, we have actually done one talk earlier. Uh, delving into the nature of how a dharma would look like, how would we contrast it with a uh, conventional nation state as we know of it today and uh, the character of state that will uh, get established if we go about a dharma So this can be seen as a continuation. Uh, how do we go about, but uh, for a brief uh, detour, we want to rationalize uh, under what backdrop we want to go about it. So two parts of the backdrop or the context in which uh, we want to discuss this. One is the external, uh, which is uh, the last century, as we know, lot of uh, Eastern powers have decolonized and uh, as they decolonized the state model that existed at that time, most of the Eastern powers had uh, adopted. That was more of a practical exigency rather than uh, a deliberate choice. It could have been deliberate, but yet not very a willing choice. At the same time, as the Eastern powers are going, let us say India, China or others, their aspirations are growing and their ability to independent thinking is also started growing. And uh, along with this, they started also seeing how much, and they started evaluating how much the models they have adopted are suitable to their aspirations. So with that, we uh, can also expect them to evolve their own alternate models of state alternate models of defining their own nationhood rather than a a conventional one nation, one culture kind of, uh, and along with a a union of states model that we see uh, today. At the same time, there is also this uh, increasing challenge that the open societies are facing in the Western world where successful democracies have started seeing uh, challenges to their uh, enlightenment ideals, let us say with the rising, uh, you know, the, with the Wahhabi wave or any other thing. And uh, the way liberalism is also undermining their uh, liberal ideals, and it's turning on top of it. With this, they are also forced to think more about whether the current model Uh, Of democracy or open society that they have and their governing systems are they really suitable or they will need to evolve uh, a tighter model that is going to really protect their enlightenment ideals so these challenges will also force the western powers not just the eastern powers to rethink the state models so in that sense in the global uh, stage this is probably the most fertile ground we have for conceptualizing a new Oriental theory of statecraft and how a model of governance and state. Then there is an internal backdrop. Uh, the second part of the backdrop of the context is internal. Which is uh, So when we come to uh, India or Bharata, then though the state we have uh, architected on our own uh, deliberation, it's still known to be inimical to the native civilization it is definitely not known, known to be aligned to the native civilization by its architecture by its ideals and uh, seven decades of experience there is also a growing uh, feeling that the state is inherently unfair it's not uh, so there is a different uh, uh, there are different perceptions about it something the state can be fair by ideals but it has been unfair by implementation but some who have analyzed have said that uh, you know the fundamental theory of state itself is such that it is going to be unfair no matter what, how honest the people at the top are. We, I mean, that analysis can happen, but uh, basically it is still found to be unfair nevertheless. No and state is also found to be ineffective in removing obstacles in the genuine progress of the nation. So. Uh, I mean, it can be called corruption, it can be called the bureaucracy, it can be called anything, but the uh, entire system put together, the worldview underlying the state or the philosophy by which the state is architected or the institutions of society that the state is encouraging or discouraging. This whole setup is found to be ineffective and that's the sense that nation gets. Yes, there have been uh, uh, blips ups and downs and a few glorious moments where uh, good individuals have shown excellence. But that's rather an exception rather than a pattern. And the more important and the deeper thing is state ideals are themselves found to be ambivalent. Are they really just? Is it really uh, resulting in a set of laws that are going to be just? And coming to be the way the nation uh, sees herself, is the nation able to assert her collective will, which is reflective in the institutions of state, in the way state conducts itself? This fundamental question does not have a very good answer, uh, even after seven decades. Yes. The nation could assert the will in in an electoral way, the nation could get people of its choice, of her choice to the top. But is that enough? Not really. The will doesn't have to uh, be visible just in a few persons at the top. The will have to reflect in the way the entire nation is progressing and the way the entire state is functioning. And functioning of the state is not limited to how the government functions. It is basically all the limbs of the state, the philosophy of the state and everything. Even in that sense, uh, we have a very good uh, fertile ground for conceptualizing a new state model. Given this, there is enough impetus to go about uh, debating how alternate models of state would look like. So as part of discussing this, uh, we have tried to break it down into a few major sections. Uh, one is a, a brief uh, contrast of a Dharmarajya with the nation state. Uh, this is a very brief uh, uh, overview so that we can go further in the topic other than an analysis of that subject. And then we want to discuss a few approaches, how we go about things, and then the development of a dharma rajya. The fourth section is, uh, you know, in grey. It's not in black because these spheres of activity and these things we want to show in the way the previous things are done, rather than as a additional section. So, for a very brief uh, introduction, this uh, subject, when we talk of statecraft, establishing a state, has uh, several layers, uh, four levels of it. Uh, We go back to Purusha Sukta. Any subject, as we discuss, it has uh, several levels. It has a worldview level. So, in fact, the Purusha Sukta says, uh, So, only the manifest layer is what we get to see, most people. But what underlies it is what really is governing it. And that has itself several uh, layers. The real uh, three legs that are governing the fourth or resulting in the fourth. So in that sense, uh, in the statecraft, in context of statecraft, the instruments, the policies, laws, all that we get to see in the manifest form, they are only the visible fourth leg. Underlying this is an architecture of a state. Underlying underlying the architecture of state is, that, uh, is a doctrine and character of state and underlying that in turn is a worldview from which all this is emanating. By worldview, we say how man is characterized, how the world is characterized, how we see, how we define goals of life and the purpose of existence. So, the uh, goals of the state is given by the Dharma Shastra, that is the foundational text. It has the worldview, it describes the nature. Uh, it is an ontological text
1: uh,
0: or uh, it is a text with sufficient ontological content. Or the layer and based on that layer the rest of the uh, content derives. It also tells about the doctrine of statecraft and then Arthashastra is the real text that gives the uh, nature of state how it is going to be the instrument state has to work with the society and fulfilling the goals of the state now. Uh, in a democracy, if we see, is constitution a cause or an effect? It is often said that constitution reflects the will, collective will of the nation. In that sense, it should be an effect. But also we see that it is the cause uh, of the state, it is the cause of the doctrine of state, it is the cause of the uh, operations or philosophy of the state. and Because of that, it is also cause of what all is seen in the nation in terms of economy, education, quality, jurisprudence in every sphere. So, is this cause-effect cycle really deterministic or is it going to result in an optimal result? It's a very debatable question. It's not, uh, in fact, if we see our own nation's evolution, we have defined the constitution, there were some debates, then it was adopted by the parliament. Has there been uh, sufficient critique, has there been sufficient uh, set of mechanisms created by which there can be a structured update to the constitution? No. There have been changes mostly based on random expression of will from time to time. And there is a reason for it and we will get into the reason. but. Now, if we have to go about in a more structured way about establishing something, a state or its foundational text, namely constitution, shakta, uh, I mean, in fact, not just shakta, but a lot of philosophies hold by this, the, uh, the triple principle, basically the will, knowledge and action are the three forms of force, expression of force. Now, will is how democracy actually touts its benefits, but there are limitations of will. Limitations. The biggest limitation of will and what prevents it from translating into action is the absence of knowledge. Unless there is sufficient and necessary knowledge, the will cannot translate into action. And that is where we see that We as a nation have the problem. There is collective nation will, national will. Nobody can deny since 1947, even before partition, the the collective innate craving of this nation to manifest herself and her own ethos. But those ethos have never translated, not just because the will was not there, but almost entirely because the necessary knowledge was not there in translating this will into action at all levels. So, in that sense, synthesis of that knowledge becomes our primary uh, goal if we are to go about establishing a dharma raja. So because the, uh, in the context of statecraft constitution remains our foundational text and the smriti uh, remains our foundational text in, in a dharma raja. We still want to take a small detour looking at the nature of those texts and consequently what kind of uh, state they are going to result in and then come back uh, to how we can realize this. So, uh, if we look at a Smriti or a Dharma Shastra, its content uh, is primarily ontological and prescriptive it is a refutable document. It it has itself based uh, on uh, more axiomatic text, namely the Shruti. So there is an axiomatic text, there is a derived text, there is a systematic way to refute it, change it, alter it, and restructure it. Whereas Constitution is more a gospel. It's basically it expresses a wish, saying this is what we want to establish, and then. Uh, it tells this 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 is what we want to do now the problem in this is it's rather arbitrary it can be modified definitely but it's not refutable document it's if we cannot refute a document there is no structured way of changing it there is only an arbitrary way of changing it and that's primarily where we have currently the problem the uh, dharma also has different layers in its text there is an eternal or universal which is Sanatana, then we have a yuga or the temporal layer. This is less permanent, but it gives large patterns of
1: uh, human conduct
0: and things like that. And then we have a deshakala or a time space specific layer. This layer keeps changing from time to time and its orientation can also change. Whereas in constitution, there is nothing like permanent. It is basically always known to be temporary because by its own definition, constitution is representation of will at that point of time. So it can always change. But what is basic about it is some fundamental ideals that are uncompromised. Now these ideals themselves, do they have an ontological basis? Can they be refuted? Can they be altered? There is no structure uh, to that that structure lies completely outside the debate of constitution. If that is done and somehow translates into will, then it can reflect in constitution. Then the applicability of uh, the text of Smriti, it has, because it has these multiple layers, there is obviously one universal layer where where everything applies. And then there is a law of land distinctly called out where the uh, law, based on the nature of that law, even that is elaborately explained within Dharma Shastra saying this is the nature of this land, therefore this kind of law should apply to this. Now, constitution only says this is the law that applies to this land. There is no rationale as to why it applies. It is assumed that people know why it is applying. And as a result of all this, the nature of institutions that uh, these result in are going to be very different. Institutions of nation will be there uh, that the spriti prescribes. And then it also takes cognizance of institutions of society without uh, trying to prescribe them to the society. It takes cognizance of society as it is. Whereas constitution tries to tell how a society should be and then tries to define it, basically nation controlling, uh, state controlling the nation. Also constitution assumes a moral scheme, it doesn't uh, systematize a moral scheme either, it just says that because it is again reflection of public will, what public morality is, it will get reflected into constitutional morality. Whereas the Dharma explicitly spells out its assumptions. systematic in that sense. It says, this is my scheme of morality and this is how uh, people are. Because people are of this nature, now I am going to give laws that are going to be like this. Constitution uh, also claims uh, or craves protection of rights and uh, it prevents uh, abuse of power by the executive, whereas goals of the the Dhammashastra Goals of life according to Dharma Shastra are basically the Purushardhas. Towards fulfillment of Purushardha, the duties of state are prescribed. The next part is the uh, religion. Basically, the democratic state can be secular. In general, state can be either secular or theotic, theocratic. There is no clear uh, holistic view of this thing. There is a assumption of power struggle between church and state, whereas the dharmashatra doesn't see any such thing. It knows that the institutions of society are different, religion doesn't come into state or the other way. But the fundamentals of how a man is, they remain the same whether it is religion or state. It's basically a worldview that is underlying this. So that worldview is taken cognizance of and explicitly spelled out. And there is no religious profane dichotomy drawn by the Dhamma Shastra. And it is agnostic of tradition. It doesn't discriminate one from the other. Though it doesn't claim to do that, its inherent principles result in it automatically. And it also acknowledges that people have traditions, people have their innate craving to follow their traditions, and makes enough checks and balances around those. Neither does it give excessive freedom if the law is clear. Any violation of law will be dealt with no matter what tradition it is. The most important difference is constitution assumes society is organized, whereas the Dharma Shastra is designed primarily for inherited societies. Inherited society does not just mean genetically inherited. It's basically a continued tradition of knowledge, a civilizational experience that is evolving this social organism over time in a continuous way now the nation state as we know is a political entity it's basically a geopolitical entity therefore this nation is fit into the state whereas in a Dharma Rajya, we have an orthogonal separation between the institutions of Rajya and institutions of rashtra the universality of the application of uh, culture or cultural continuity of people across uh, lands is not curtailed by the state. The nation-state and uh, rashtra, I mean, as a result of constitution and dharma shastra, are going to be therefore very fundamentally different. Where in rashtra, uh, because of Purushartha being the goal, enlightenment and fulfillment become the goal. Therefore, the state is prescribed to enable mechanisms that cause the fulfillment of these goals rather than establishing a welfare state. Given this, uh, can we, are there any practical ways to go about it? Is Dharmarajaya a far off goal or is it even practical? The reason this question comes is there is no clear articulation of what it is going to be like and what its structure is going to be like, what are the models that are possible and how feasible it is or how far it is from the present reality. While a lot has not come into discourse, I think there are still two broad approaches that people propose uh, or people who are active. and. have the scholarship are proposing. One is the systemic reform. Basically you have to work through the system. This is What we have is the living reality. We have a nation state and then we have a society that is craving to manifest itself and realize for herself a dharma raja. So we have to pick what is there. We don't take a bad blood or ill will towards the existing system. But we have to work through it and make the changes that we have to make to transform its character fundamentally. So getting the right persons at the top, now the kind of institutions we are going to establish, the kind of uh, policies we are going to design, should be in the direction that takes us towards the ideal. Now, this is inherently an asymptotic process, what it involves is Working with the reality at the same time, it is not taking cognizance of the final goal. How and why is the final goal important is basically, fundamentals will remain alien to a good extent unless we have enough critical mass to change the fundamentals. Policies can change. But the philosophy underlying the policies cannot change until the fundamentals change. And that's going to take a long time And uh, if we work through the system. Now the, the good part of this is, we work through the system, we get enough readiness, we create a critical mass, then a more fundamental change can be pitched. So that's the merit, the proponents of systemic reform propose. The alternate approach, obviously, is the system design. Uh, We go back to the drawing board. We say this is how the state is going to be or has to be looking like. We architect what is ideal. We leave the baggage of present and past and say how it has to look like. And if we have to suit something for future, this is how it's going to be. This has its merits and demerits. It looks very impractical when we begin. It can't be easily taken to discourse. But at the same time, for the architects of the system, there is no uh, resistance. They can work, they can systematize things. And as things come to reality, that is when the real resistance is seen. The okay. so change is not very easy in any system. And we, uh, unless there is enough critical mass of knowledge that is required to launch, we are not going to see any uh, obstacles in actual devil in synthesizing the knowledge So, system reform uh, if we take as an approach how does it look like I and mean, we have to change the constitution we have to change the basic structure after we are able to get to a pass where we can debate the merits in the current basic structure then we have to revise the structure then we have to revisit the assumptions that are li- underlying the basic structure Then we have to change the laws, then we reform the institutions of the state and we bring uh, economic reforms, educational reforms. So reforms in every field, in administration also and uh, this is a process that takes its own course uh, and time, but if we look at the word reform itself, reform We assume that there is a form and then we posit what form we need to take and then we change the form from the current to the future. So, the idea that we propose this is going to be the new form. That itself is still limited by our understanding of the present and it is not informed by an understanding of the ideal. That is the main uh, limitation in the system reform approach, though it's very eminently practical. So we are able to change things, but we don't exactly make the right moves towards the ideal because we have not conceived it yet. The system architecture, uh, the second approach is basically we, when we go back to drawing board, we go about synthesizing the knowledge that is required for the far future, distant future, without the baggage of the present. That gives us the advantage of formulating problems of the future very differently from the mindset that we take if we are bogged down with the present day's problems. Time is dynamic, not uh, problems are not going to be constant, they are going to change. And we face today's problems, we solve today's problems, tomorrow's problems will come. So in that we will always be in a catch-up mode unless we are going to do an independent system architecture for the future. To avoid a permanent crisis mode and a permanent catch-up mode, we will have to at some point do the independent architecture without regard to the present. Now, that also requires a preparation for a fundamental change. I mean, once we have the knowledge, we have to launch it, we have to take it to discourse, we have to make sure uh, there is acceptance for it. All that is there, but we can present only what we know. of. We cannot present something that we just dream of. In that sense, synthesizing that knowledge is extremely important. And that requires preparation of the theoretical framework. And envisage a spirit that is eternal And it can work through the form. So we can demonstrate how that spirit can transform the present into the future. So broadly, these are the two uh, approaches and this is a brief contrast. Both involve getting right men into positions that is non-negotiable. We need to have the right men to do the right things. At the policy design level, they look very similar. Let us say we work through the system or we architect a new system, it may look very similar in terms of policy. Let us say religious tolerance. There should be tolerance at the policy level. State policy obviously is not very intrusive. It has to be liberal at the same time, it has to curtail uh, unlawful tendencies. At that level, they look very similar. Now, institution design is where the difference starts coming. We assume the present, we reform the institutions of the present, economic reforms are done. What is the theory behind uh, the institution and what is the theory that we are going to posit? In the absence of a new theory, we are going to transform these institutions in a way they are going to solve today. Not in a way they are going to prepare us for two centuries or three centuries or millennia. This is where the real difference in these approaches starts coming. Now, when we get to the state, the difference deepens. The theoretical framework is where the real difference is because working through the system assumes present day theories to hold good. And that is where our real challenge will be. And where we obviously is where the real difference is. Are we going to take a uh, colonial worldview versus a dharmic worldview. Now, it, one can argue that even if I am working through the system, I might be having the knowledge of a distant future. I am just not getting it into discourse because it is not convenient today. Now, that is very arguable because once we have that knowledge, the way we present the idea will be very different. The way we present will inform, will reveal whether we have that vision or not. So, what are the fertile grounds for bringing a change to be able to launch something, launch a difference or launch a alternate model? The nature of what is to be uh, or the nature of a dharma it needs to be in discourse. We need to be able to bring it into discourse as a dream, as a thing of glory. Rather than as something uh, that is vague and desirable, we need to sell it as a dream. Several concepts have to come. It, it can't be just saying uh, Hindu Rashtra or a few slogans. It has to be sets of concepts, their workable models, their theories, how they are going to look like. And such concepts need to be flooded into discourse. And each, they may be. Uh, there will be a lot of differences that but that is good. I mean eventually that has to change the course of discourse into a direction where all the competition is
2: among the dharmic models. And the need to bring the change has to be perceived within the discourse,
0: which is which is going to happen once the alternates are visible. Most of the time society lives with what is available unless there is a visible alternative and people live with Ravana until Rama is visible. They can't do anything. So that alternate has to be visible. Then the need will be acknowledged by people. Even though it is perceived, it will not be acknowledged until it is visible. And non-preemption of discourse has to happen. And uh, there is always this uh, tendency that we see in the pragmatists that The distant future should not be talked of, it may be inconvenient to sell to people. Now that has to really change. The reason why communism did succeed is by selling a dream, it is not by showing practical changes. It did a few practical changes, but it primarily sold dreams, utopias. And a non-negative set of aspirations has to be sold through, and the current situation may be positive, negative, whatever, but basically whatever we are going to posit has to be really positive. And there should be a clear feasibility and why can't it happen? That sense of positivity has to be created in discourse. There are a few uh, arguments we see to this effect. Saying, let us say, monarchy is not impossible we can still go to it, that may or may not be, but there have to be much more practical, much more worked out, much more logically established uh, models and a lot of them in the discourse. And finally, uh, so near yet so far that it should not be like that, it should be a reverse of that, it should be looked like a dream that is never impossible to realize, let us say establishing Krita in the Kaliya itself. It's not impossible the way we see pockets of that from time to time. There is no reason to not make it a realized dream. Our proposition fundamentally is that the development of knowledge is what is the main obstacle in transforming our will into action. Our realizing of dharma Dharmarajya is contingent on the knowledge that we generate. So developing knowledge that forms the basis for establishment of our idea state. We we do have, I mean, people say actually there are a lot of theories available. There are a lot of, uh, there is a lot of past record we also have. But there has been a lot of disconnect and whatever synthesizes the theoretical models of past and makes them or applies them for future and say, this is how the future is going to look like. And that is the real knowledge that we have to synthesize. So in that sense, we need theoretical frameworks that can stand on their own, on their own, really without having to take recourse to any of the alternate models. Let us say it's not just rights framework, coordination state or anything, most of what we argue, it's not independent of uh, the modern theories. We should be able to posit and develop and synthesize alternate theories without depending on the concepts of the present or concepts of the West. It is okay to use them in practice, but not in development of knowledge and theory. And we need enablement for developing models. There have to be both uh, institutions that are doing research, but more important than that is institutional support to piloting and uh, experimentation of models in small pockets where the success or failure of these models can be demonstrated deterministically. It may be possible in some spheres, let us say town planning, it is possible, education, it is possible. Jurisprudence, it may not be possible, but wherever it is possible, it should be linked with practice while developing theory on matters where a more systemic reform is required. Models, we require uh, models positing different answers. We need to frame different questions. The way the West has framed its questions is based on its own worldview man has needs, man craves happiness, and these are the natural rights a man has, this is the nature of a man. Basically, there is that anthropology that is assumed when West frames its questions to arrive at institutions. And our questions need to be asked differently. We need to take our worldview into consideration when we frame our questions towards designing our institutions. What are the responsibilities of state. How does state understand a society and a nation? This has to be based on an understanding of dharma, which is natural righteous order, the nature of man and the nature of state, which is raja dharma. Then from there, the rest of the questions come, more practical questions come, how does state protect liberties of citizens? This assumes that there is something called a liberty there is something called a right. Now these are all defined in certain theoretical framework. We don't still yet have that theoretical framework where we define what exactly a liberty is, what exactly a right is, or what exactly fulfillment is. And that's the reason we have to take to recourse to the modern concepts as it stands today. And unless we synthesize that, we will not be able to posit an alternate theoretical model. We may be practically changing things, but that theoretical model will not evolve until we have this framework. Similarly, uh, another corollary question is: What makes state keep its own power in check? Which is basically, you know, abuse of power and checks against abuse
2: of power, and uh, you know, laws that are keeping the power in check.
0: this is all assuming that state has infinite power and it infringes upon the freedom of individuals innately or inherently it has the nature to do that. That is not the fundamental assumption of a dharmanajya. It does not assume that the state has infinite power to infringe upon the rights of this uh, civilian. It assumes state has certain responsibilities and freedom of the individual is infinite unless he is breaching something. So it's a fundamentally different view. But this view can only be expressed today as a hunch. It cannot be expressed as a formal policy because we have not theorized it and formulated it through a theoretical framework. Uh, here, is, uh, here are a few uh, use cases where we can see how the knowledge synthesis is going to make a difference. Now, if we look at Wright's framework, there are a bunch of things, uh, theoretical assumptions that result in what is today called the rights framework. And rights framework is a pervasive concept in most constitutions. So it unless that is changed, we are not going to be able to change the nature of the state or the character of the state. So man has certain nature, there is an anthropology. Then man has certain rights, natural rights, because he is of certain nature. Now state has to protect man's nature from itself because it has the tendency to infringe. And state has to protect man's rights from society itself because society is also a bad thing. So individual has to be protected from state and from society. This is fundamentally not the way in which Dharmarajya is going to look at itself or the society. Our fundamental assumption is, or our premise is that all beings crave happiness Man does also, man also craves happiness, ultimately he wants to fulfill himself. Now as part of it, there could be excesses happening. So state has to enable the highest fulfillment and states checks and balances have to happen in this regard rather than seeing state itself or society itself as a means of exploitation. Exploitation can happen as a side effect and that has to be checked. But state is not inherently an exploitative institution, that is the assumption. So Now we can see how the theology results in a social theory, then that results in a principle for state. And that principle results in a set of laws and policies. So unless all these layers of knowledge is synthesized, we are not going to be able to formulate policies that are consistent with what we would want to achieve. Similarly with religion, now there is a right to propagate that constitutions have, where does the right derive from? There is an assumption of a monotheism, a bipartite worldview that uh, there is a believer, there is a non-believer. Believer has a duty to convert the non-believer into believing in his faith. So it is the natural right or natural tendency of humans to propagate and convert. Now from there derives the right to propagate, from the natural duty of conversion comes a right to propagate. To curtail this uh, excesses of this right, now there is a church state separation, we have the religion denomination, we have a lot of uh, constructs put in to make sure there are enough checks and balances. But these checks and balances are all coming from the fundamental assumption of one trying to go about and expressing himself, not just expressing himself, imposing himself on others and convert others into his own ways. Again, this is fundamentally not the way in which we look at the world. There are many ways to look at the world. Many people look at the world differently. Many people have uh, different ways to fulfill themselves. They may engage with each other in harmonious ways, now each way is consistent with him, and anybody who has better solutions for present and future in terms of how one can fulfill, he is going to have more influence in the society, which is natural. As long as there is no conflict, one has to be, each way of life or each tradition has to be inward looking. Now, this gives rise to a sampradaya ecosystem as we have in the Hindu society. If this is the fundamental premise. We are not going to have a state that gives a right to propagate. Again, uh, because the worldview is different, it is going to result in a different social theory, it is going to result in a different principles for the state or doctrine for the state. In turn that will result in a different set of laws and policies. Jurisprudence is another case where again, uh, it is a complex set. It is again based on several theories. One, we have ideals, equality and justice, although they have their own trade-off, they are sought to be fulfilled, then there is a concept of rights, then there is a concept of public morality, then uh, there is a theory of penalty, how do we impose penalty, why do we impose penalty, what are the goals, how do we ensure it is just, where we bring transformation, how do we deter crime, and things like that. It's a complex set, but all these are Underlying jurisprudence. So, if we are, uh, whereas the entire set of theories is going to alter when we talk of a Dharmarajya. We know there is a cosmic order. We know there is a natural order, which is the microcosm of the cosmic order. We know there is a nature of man. Man innately craves to be happy to fulfill himself then we say there are duties of state to enforce order or to ensure order is there. And state has the responsibility to impose an efficient penalty. And the purpose of penalty is not primarily deterrence of crime. Deterrence of crime is a side effect. Primarily king has to impose penalty because if the penalty is not imposed, the criminal's paradha is going to be suffering. So, so that the criminal doesn't suffer in the higher worlds, he has to suffer here. He has to expiate for it in this world. And King is actually helping people by doing that, by doing delivering just penalties. Now, King is therefore not the enemy of criminal either, and he is not enemy of the innocent, also. At the same time, he is dispassionately delivering his justice. And he is also ensuring through this uh to a proportionate penalty, he is helping the criminal and he is also creating enough discouragement in the innocent people. So, the fearlessness among innocent and fear and due expiation among the criminals. This is how Dharmaraja posits the fundamentals of uh, you know, penalty. In this sense, again, uh, because this is a worldview and a psychology affecting the principle of state or deriving a principle for the state, which in turn results in laws and policies and penal codes and things like that. Therefore, here uh, also we will require again, this is just easier said than done. So all this is looking good, but there is no, not enough theoretical framework for this from where we can derive any
2: official state policy as it stands today. So synthesis of this knowledge, again.
0: Education is the next uh, most important sphere, although it is, uh, a lot is talked about this, but not a lot is done again for the same reason of knowledge not being synthesized enough. Whereas data is abundant. In fact, uh, if we see, uh, we know how literacy has been weaponized between 1820 and 1931. Literacy has been used as a weapon Uh, has been used as an incentive for people who are literate, they can get into government jobs, people who are not literate cannot get into those jobs, exploitation happens primarily because literacy was not there, innocent, uh, illiterate people were duped, so there is a century of history behind why literacy became a goal. And after independence, literacy was kept in such an importance without sufficient review of what caused the importance of literacy. If we see critics by Anandakumaraswamy and others literacy he in fact he wrote the bugbear of literacy, saying literacy is not primary education is primary literacy in fact uh, if we to see today. Today, literacy is not that important. In fact, there are so many ways. There are audio-video conversions. The technology has developed so much. So, writing skill is not that important these days. Things change. And when things change, the priorities also need to change. That sufficiently cannot reflect in our education policies unless we again synthesize the required knowledge. The goals for life, let us say. We say this is the goal of life. Uh, man craves happiness, for that he seeks to fulfill himself, for that fulfillment he tries to gain knowledge that is required for his fulfillment and that knowledge he needs to gain from the subjects he is learning. So there is one holistic view of life, there is just one subject that we, uh, not one subject, one text that we teach which is an encyclopedic text which teaches all the subjects. That's an ideal education. The same text should have a general knowledge, nature of life, how we are going to understand life, how we are going to uh, solve problems. Everything put together into one text. That is the ideal education or ideal curriculum. Now, to get there, we need to be able to posit this as a problem, formulate this statement, and then go about it. And to be able to formulate this problem statement, we need to first bring that worldview in a more formal way into the theoretical framework. Economy is uh, another sphere where practical, it is assumed that a lot of things happen practically rather than theoretically. Yet a lot of things happen more theoretically than practically. In fact, uh, if we draw a simple contrast, we can say the... Uh, West has given us an economic culture, whereas, you know, India has always been a cultural economy. So there is the same bipartite worldview, the insider-outsider assumption, then there is an economic view of man, there is a capital and resource management problems are formulated in a certain way. and They have resulted in certain past, uh, certain record in the West, let us say, the capital and uh, manpower and skill management the problems of this have resulted in what kinds of institutions in the West? They have first seen slavery, then they have seen the serfdom or the feudalism, then they have seen an industrialization, then they have seen an employment culture, then they have an anti-exploitation law. So there has been an evolution in the West, of course, towards what they think is better and better, and it is morally improving also. Yet, the assumptions that are causing these, that view of man, Is not sufficiently critical. Whereas in a cultural economy, we have a holistic worldview. Economy is not the goal, economy is a byproduct. We take a cultural view of economy, we build the social and cultural institutions. They are the vehicles of economy, and economy is generated as a side effect or as a result. That brings a very different view to how we are going to create institutions, how we are going to frame policies now if there are groups that are invested in excellence that are inward looking and these groups have enough capital social capital financial capital skill capital and therefore they have enough bargaining power in the society there is no need for state to do much and society is governing itself and generating its own wealth that's how India has progressed over ages and we know the track record also. We have been most prosperous. At the same time, we have been least exploitative. We did not have to create slavery to exploit or exploit manpower to generate our wealth. We could generate our wealth without having to exploit. And this fundamental moral superiority, we can just say as a track record, anybody looking at the past can say, make this statement, but at the same time there is no theoretical framework that we have today built that can translate into official policy. So in that sense, based on our worldview, we have to uh, generate our social theory, then that translates into a principle for statecraft, which can only then result into a set of laws and policies that a state can implement towards uh, realizing a cultural economy. The final example is the town planning. The uh, standard again, we, we have a record we have a colonial past, but managing resources for human consumption. This is how any town planning problem is stated fundamentally. And we have to manage the town uh, planning system for efficiency and sanitation. Ultimate goal of this is obviously public welfare. Whereas Nagara Nirvana, if we FVC. That's not the goal. Uh, We posit it very differently. We say society is a vehicle of divine and natural elements are all divine. Therefore, we worship them, we use them uh, judiciously. In fact, as Sri Arvinda says, the society, ideal society is the vehicle of that chariot of Jagannath, he compares with it. Therefore, cleanliness, uh, being one manifestation of divinity it is naturally going to be there if we see the traditional town planning models the grama nagara patana and mahanagara models uh, where uh, you know the which can be roughly uh, related to rural urban and poor town plans we do not see any side effects like slums we see a clear segregation we also see a nagara or a town being compared to a human body I and mean, every human body has a vastu in fact, like uh, in fact, in Ramayana, the Rama's body vastu is very elaborately described. So the body has a vastu, the village has a vastu, so it means just the orientation, how things are uh, relatively proportionately positioned and things like that. It's not really about, you know, it is in a way about auspiciousness, but it's not exactly that. So If we take such a perspective, now the this results in, let us say, we see the town as a manifestation of divinity. Obviously, it has a physical presence also. There will be a town temple, but there will be arrangement of uh, different sections of activity, different spheres of activity with an intent of enabling those spheres of activity. We need to enable knowledge function, we need to enable people for performing different duties, we need to enable people who want to live peacefully. We need to also enable this whole town in a way that its wind flow is ideal. So There is a lot of study that goes into it. Again, that theoretical framework needs to develop based on our worldview. Then it can become a uh, principle for state saying this is how the state needs to uh, enable ideal administrative system for public. Administration or town planning or things like that. And consequent to that, policies can come. So, what can be done? Uh, I mean, this is all the generation of knowledge. Now, what can be done? The ideal thing is basically we should have an incentive system. How communism could get the control uh, of the Indian state, though it did not rule politically or, or being even electorally successful. Was it resulted or it affected the state to create an incentive system? So we need to have an incentive system that uh, enables us to realize the Dharmarajya. One is obviously the religious incentive. Incentive should be given to tolerant traditions, and there should be active discouragement to aggression. There should be academic incentive towards scholarship, and there needs to be active discouragement to ideology. In political correctness when scholarship has to be at uh, universities and other uh, academic uh, is places of excellence they need to really invest in knowledge sloganeering or you know things like social justice fake ideals should not be governing scholarship. people with knowledge need to be incentivized and put in the right positions. Executive needs to incentivize synthesis. Uh, better models for administration, more just models for administration. There needs to be discouragement to uh, control seeking within the executive. And that has to happen right from the top and constitutionally through the judiciary. Legislative also needs to have incentive to make laws in favor of dharma. And there needs to be active discouragement to political correctness, because ultimately Welfare of the nation is hurt by that. Society should have an incentive, and within society, there should be incentive towards upward mobility. The way uh, we currently, the state uh, defines society is in terms of forward-backward groups. This is hardly, and in fact, it has incentivized downward mobility. Everybody is in a race to be called backward rather than being called forward. So this incentive system has to be exactly reversed where people crave to be forward rather than backward. And uh, part of the reason is obviously that uh, material terms have strictly become definitions. In fact, in a traditional state in a dharmaraja, there is no definition of forward backward because everybody defines his own forwardness in a different way. For one it is spiritual, for one it is material, for one it is wealth, for one it is. So that definition should not be given by state. State should have active enablement rather than definition. Go be definitional about these matters. And finally, uh, state needs to incentivize building a grand narrative narrative for our country. We have our grand narrative. We can get it into discourse. Then we can see more demands for doing the right things, which probably look very far at present and impractical at present. Building brand name for the civilization and native ethos. This, I think, has partly started. And synthesizing knowledge for future based on native values, this is one area that is really lacking and needs to happen. Encouragement to native languages has probably started. Native ways of statecraft, these models have to really evolve. Social theories have to evolve. I don't think we have actually started working on social theories. Native economic models need to be more formalized into theory. There are successful models demonstrated in different places, but they have not been translated into any theoretical models that can be pushed into formal systems. And finally, encourage native pedagogy. A
1: few questions. First is, you know, just some quotations that sort of came out west has given us an economic culture while india has always had a cult- has had cultural economics very nice uh, very sort of deep also we did not have to create slavery to generate wealth we had institutions for wealth generation very very powerful insight i thought i'm going to quote it in several places
3: uh, i am a lawyer and this is an area of interest for me because i also work in the area of environment law um, whatever little I've seen, I joined in late. Brilliant. What Rahulji just mentioned, that cultural economy part is very profound. It's just impacted me like no, nothing else. My specific question has to do with the way you mentioned about the vastu of, uh, you know, the city, how it is. Right now, what I'm grappling with is that... Um, the, 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 there is an arm of the government which wants to levy a kind of a fees for, on companies who are collecting the bio-waste for conversion into uh, fuel. As you, under, as you may uh, be aware, Delhi NCR area, we have a problem with the smoke at this time because of the burning of the stubble. The government is trying to do something about it. But there is an arm of the government which says that if any of the companies touch that bio-waste, the stubble, to convert it into ethyl alcohol for whatever further purpose, they have to pay a fee for that. And the companies have said, we're not going to pay any fee for this because it's a waste. And we, we are actually doing a big thing. Now, in such a situation, and I have been giving all kinds of crazy advice on this as a lawyer, but in such a situation given this knowledge that you have, this profound background that you have, is there anything that you can suggest what our ancient people would have done in such a situation? Because we are completely skewed in the way we are looking at, you know, handling our waste and handling our resources. So if you have any any idea uh, on how this situation can be grappled with.
0: Not me, but I am sure a lot of knowledgeable people are there who did research on this specific topic but what limited understanding I have I can say we don't have the perspective of a life cycle of how things go through and that is why things are becoming problematic whether it is slum or whether it is wastage or whether it is any other thing we don't have the concept of life cycle things don't feed into each other to complete a cycle that is why things are getting into this category called waste, then we'll have to deal with the problem. We create waste, then we have to deal with it. In fact, uh, so uh, obviously, companies are not going to do anything where their incentive is not going to be there. So, I agree. It's not just about tax. There has to be sufficient incentive. It can't be done as a philanthropic thing. There needs to be sufficient uh, incentive for people doing that job. But it has to feed in back. That's my main thing. I mean, it's not burning things and uh, ending them. It doesn't uh, end the cycle because it's going to feed us back in terms of pollution. There needs to be a more organic way of dealing with this.
3: There have been some queries which have come basically from the legal point of view, which is asking for what is a way to structure a city, like a smart city, for instance. And we're looking at internet of things and all those kind of things. But you know, that is, I personally, I feel is very superficial because in every system, there is an input, there is a processing and there's an output. And if the output is a product, which is a very value added product or useful product, it's fine. But output need not always be a very useful product. There can be a waste that comes of it. If you had to give a suggestion on the basis of I mean, brand new, ground zero. We start from absolute ground zero. Based on this vastu, is there somewhere I can read up on it or I can look it up or can I have a conversation with you later offline? Or is there something that you can just share at this moment, two, three sentences on uh, if it is a ground zero, what? how do we structure it? It may
0: require, I mean, yeah, offline is best. I mean, I can try to get uh, some details. But uh, basically, yeah, this life cycle. I said uh, if the grammar is there, the grammar has to be self sufficient. And what is coming in, what is going out, the loop has to end. That's, I mean, uh, in principle, that is the thing. Now we create things that are not going to terminate. That's where the main problem is. I mean, the non perishable waste is one manifestation of this problem. But the other problem, obviously, is of the especially in cities, it's going to be of the burial. We can't just keep burying and expanding the burial land where living people have lesser land than the dead. So, the notion of life, the completion where, uh, you know, perishing, physical perishing is the way we define it. it. It needs to be, traditionally, that's not how we do it, right? I mean, man has to be not known. In fact, a lot of people don't even write their names when they author things because they see it is an aswargya. Similarly, once they, somebody dies, there is no uh, physical thing reminding us of him. He is known only through words, only through concepts. So, that notion of leaving around something, especially in the physical sense, that's pretty Abrahamic, and I think that's fine, fundamentally the reason why. We have these problems. And we don't mind having this, let us say, the plastic waste or any other kind of waste. There is no deliberate intent in withdrawing ourselves and making sure our presence is not felt in the world. I mean, if we have that de- deliberate intent cultivated in people, I think companies as a policy will also be forced to do that. And state obviously today is extremely materialistic, it does not have the view that. That spiritual view where, uh, you know, that cycle has to complete, no physical existence is, you know, our emphasis on the physical.
2: I'm very new to Srijan, you know, uh, talks and I've recently, uh, my introduction was with the YouTube videos. And uh, I think this is my second session where I'm attending live. When you listen to my question, you would feel as if it's a jumbled thought. Maybe that is what my state is right now. So when I listen to all these conversations, uh, it confuses me. It confuses me because when you look at the Indian state and you look at the way we are running it, um, uh, it feels as if we are going completely against the dharmic values that we have. So uh, now the thought that I have or or a jumbled thought that I have, what do you have to say about that? Do you think that we are completely going against it? And if we are going against it, then how would we come to the right path? How do we guide uh, the people to the right path?
0: So My uh, premise is slightly different. I think uh, looking at the background, the colonial past and the way Eastern powers have decolonized the natural craving for them in the century to come is going to be about establishing their own theories of state. In that sense, I in the long term, I really don't have that uh, worry that we are going farther because eventually that uh, collective will is going to manifest in a dharmic way. Yeah, as of today, it is definitely not, I understand. And things are deepening in the negative sense. But this is obviously not a, Topic, uh, you know, that we can debate uh, within the time frame of few decades. It's a topic that is, that has a very uh, much wide stretch in time in terms of its uh, application. So we can see some changes are coming, and obviously there is some sense of positivity whenever governments change. But more than that, the more encouraging factor is how the nation is asserting her own will that. But that knowledge is not there that is trans that can translate this will into a dharmic state. Now that knowledge has to be synthesized, and I think it's a matter of time it will happen. Today, yeah, we don't be as encouraged. But if I see last seventy years and coming two hundred years or coming fifty years, I think it will be definitely a lot more encouraging.
1: So firstly, that's a very positive sort of Note from you that things are changing because to Jasodaji's questions, it seems things are getting worse in in my mind, perhaps hers as well. Manifestly, yes. But if
0: we, if we see take a you know wider time frame in view, and in fact, I'm more discouraged of the present day, but very hopeful of future.
1: Okay. So um, mm-hmm. we have maybe. A- a series of questions, and maybe we can engage for a little bit on, on this. So, you've offered a, a more knowledge based or intellectual framework, if you like, of what all we need to internalize, uh, reflect upon, um, you know, before we start building the institutions sort of from ground zero, like Sunita Ji was saying, even our towns or our knowledge systems and everything. Do you see this as a um, one step at a time process to do a rehaul or do you see this as almost like a like a revolution? Is this a constant slow evolution towards a dharmic state uh, or is it like a revolution that happens that we have to start from scratch once again and redo away with the constitution and say? Sorry. Over so,
0: so, when we synthesize knowledge, it is never a revolution. Basically, let us say a lot of people, when UPA was ruling the roost, uh, there was a lot of discouragement. People kept asking, where, what do we do? Even then, my statement was, it's not because they are powerful. It is basically because the right people with right skills are not around or visible. That is why we are stuck with these guys. The moment somebody with enough capability became visible, people migrated, people immediately shifted. So basically, it's because we don't have sufficient good ideas articulated well and uh, along with the theoretical framework. I mean, most part of this talk is you know, we know that uh, India has this kind of knowledge, these models are there, successful models were there, but today, if I have to adopt or something, There is no theoretical framework worked out from our worldview that says this is how we are going to do it. So, But generation of knowledge never results in a public resentment or anything, right? I mean, this is something that has to quietly happen.
1: And that's your model. So we keep generating these- Generate
0: the institutions, generate the knowledge within them and keep finding pilots wherever we can apply them.
1: But and how? To with, with private interventions, because the government is almost, uh, to Jasodaji's point, is almost adharmic in, uh, in different in different levels of, I mean, not maybe the current government so much, but in different levels, it is probably also. The state is.
0: Government probably is not. That's how I would put right? it. The state is definitely. The state is. Okay. So if we have to change the character of the state. It has to happen through the government and uh, through enough force on the government. But that is all after we have enough models ready. Now The problem is we don't have enough knowledge to get into the discourse and say, this is what I have, you need to adopt it. What I would say, this government is not opposed to. It is not going to positively enable anything, but if there are sufficient proposals in terms of, play. I don't know, and probably Nitya Aayog would have been ideal, but it has become more bureaucratic than a visionary or a thinking body. But yeah, eventually, uh, though the culture of bureaucracy is such, non-bureaucratic government institutions have to emerge.
1: So in your roadmap, really, and maybe that's another roadmap talk, you know, one is the knowledge systems which have to be built. And I'm guessing you're saying more with private effort yeah. than with government effort, right? So the models have to be built and taken to the government to places like Nidhi Ayog, who hopefully will end up adopting it. Hopefully, yeah? yeah. So, uh, okay. So private effort, then build knowledge systems, but and you think that capability in the government by these models being presented will, I mean, until a a more rooted people will somehow rise and will probably form, be part of the government in the future, who will then slowly bring change? And sort of connected question is, then it's certainly not a revolution you're talking about. So when you build systems, then these are one step at a time changes, is what I'm guessing you're... you're A lot of simultaneous things
0: have to happen.
1: The knowledge has to be generated. Uh,
0: that nobody is stopping. It has to happen. There have to. Be. The main problem is when it comes to knowledge, it's extremely privatized or individualized more than privatized. So the the moment some institutions start forming and uh, right problems get formulated. In fact, if we see myGov and a few other things, there are problem statements given, not. The intent is visible, but it's not sufficiently informed is how I see it. But while that knowledge, uh, but generating theory is not very easy without the institutional support. So unless academics formally launches these projects or let us say institutions like ICHR, we need more research bodies like that, which are less bureaucratic and more research oriented. And they have interface with uh, private organizations or individuals that are working or university
1: academics. So then Shankarji, it becomes a vicious cycle because ICHR will not have anybody. So, I mean, there is no real change that's, that's sort of coming through, not even in our textbooks, which is a constant, uh, you know, uh, venting that people from our side do. <laughs> there is, light, imagine, it is good... imagine to think of you, you mentioned a few things like... <clears throat> you know the the purpose of society society as a vehicle of the divine i mean imagine bringing that fundamental ground for for the government or the state to think itself think of itself upward from there i mean that is it's a no no at this point in time it's called religion and the state separates or attempts to separate it from itself by the constitution how do you and that's that's almost like sounds like a revolution until it happens like a like a Mauryan and a so, Chanakyan state coming in again. Let's say this uh,
0: uh, Swachh Bharati is there. You know, obviously, we have to take somebody like Gandhi, which <laughs> but basically the start is about uh, you know the public consciousness cleanliness. The intent is visible. At the same time, uh, the state. Philosophy is not in a way that you can posit divine into it. So unless the philosophy of state could be you know, repositioned, the government is not going to be in a position to do that. And, and that's exactly my point. And so, government is not able to do because we, we don't have the theory. I mean, it's a, that's where I'm coming from. Today, the government does not have the theory to support itself if it posits divine into its Vajhbarad mission.
1: Okay, it appears as bits and pieces. So, Modi ji will quote from some of the Smritis uh-huh. and say that this, this is how the approach to cleanliness to an ancient... Exactly, out of a goodwill, but there is nothing concrete that he has that he can take to
0: people either. He may or may not be willing to, but we don't have.
1: Okay, then how do we go about building such a... Um, such a framework for for everything. You start from here like a vision document. How do you go about doing it? So, even with private effort, it will need intellectuals like you to come in, give up your software jobs and do this full time.
0: There are knowledgeable people. It doesn't require people like me, but still, uh, first thing is uh, inherited knowledge. Knowledge has to be retrieved from ICU. Right now, uh, Okay, as a colonial uh, Uh, project what happened was, uh, knowledge was broken down into two functions. So basically whatever uh, was there uh, as a survival instinct or out of survival instinct, what we have done is we have formalized or the formal knowledge went into a preservation mode. And uh, there are then popular uh, gurus, these people uh, who are propagating. Uh, tried and trying to keep uh, the consciousness of the social consciousness in a, you know, by uh, let us say by spreading these uh, Ramayana Bharata, Bharata or Yoga or things like that. So, those two functions have become completely diverse. And before British intervention that they were not diverse. So, basically that knowledge synthesis and social reality were always together. This breakdown, now we have to make sure we undo that. And as we synthesize, let us say we look at the next century to come. We need to make sure they are coming back together, and people with the theoretical knowledge are coming into the you know active role of generating knowledge and applying it to the society.
4: My question is an extension to what Rahul Jesus asked that uh, you propose all these changes, constitutional change, change in law in education policy, economic policy and all. In the current scenario, I mean I may be as pessimistic as Jasu in some ways, but how practical is it with these with the media and everything dominated by the you know Congress communist ideology?
0: they are uh, in my view different spheres of activities and where knowledge is really generated usually in small pockets, closed environments they are not deterred by what public is saying I and mean, those who generate knowledge. The main problem is those who are uh, uh, knowledgeable of the text and those who are applying things uh, in public and have power, they are two separated out things today. Once we make sure those bridges are made, let us say the town planning is there, traditional knowledge coming into uh, direct contact with those who are doing town planning. These are the bridges that we need to make to make sure that uh, knowledge is generated. Now the people with traditional knowledge can generate knowledge that is applicable for future. We are not enabling them to generate by not exposing them to the current reality or and things like that. So basically those bridges is what, are what we have to primarily make.
4: That's, that's exactly the point because often on we hear Somebody has created this in his town or in his village, so as simple as water harvesting or this. there was this new technology of using bitumen for roads developed by an IIT, but it is not implemented because of the political will or whatever, or lack of will or something.
2: Yes, so so that,
4: that's, that bridging the gap is exactly what I ask. How practical is it? That
0: is practical. It's just a matter of time, is how I see it. But there is a direction. The main thing is, the government will be uh, interested in practical success. It will not be interested in uh, a theory that is going to be fruitful 50 years later. So, basically, um, and uh, it's a chicken and egg. Unless we have the theory, we are not going to realize anything. So, uh, my, and it's probably also, I mean, I should not be very critical, but it's probably also due to the Nature of the movement that has given rise to this government—they are extremely practical. They are not really focused on the permanent theories. So it's, I think, just a matter of making them realize the value of permanent theories, which are going to be positive obstacles for them in realizing what they are going to do tomorrow. Once that is impressed upon, I think fair investments will happen.
2: Thank you for taking so much of time. Uh- And Shankaraji, uh, apologies in advance. I don't want you to think that you're surrounded by pessimists. You know, Um, we want to stay optimistic and hearing you, it it gives us a ray of hope to say that you're so optimistic. You have so much experience. Um, So it is, again, a reason for us to also to stay hopeful. My question is that do we should we actually rely on Indian state or for that matter, government so much a government that by constitution is bound to be secular, right? So while dharmic, there is nothing religious about it. We know that, but, uh, you know, you have this different sect that thinks dharmic is equivalent to religious, which means to persuade the government, it either has to be, uh, this is just in my, uh, you know, limited understanding. It either has to be a grassroots revolution, which means for people to actually uh, believe in it, practice it. and you know, do their contribution, or we have to have a strong parallel system. Uh, you know, when you talk about ICHR, it's it's an institution that guzzles forty-seven lakh rupees to, to get one book, and there is no time limitation. They don't have any, uh, I, I recently remember there was a question that was asked that how, how come this book is yet not out, and they said that the person refuses to comment on it, uh, a renowned historian. Now, all these things, when we look at it, the current institutions, if they change, fantastic. I, I would want to stay hopeful there. But do you think there is a need for a parallel, strong system that uh, that could you know, uh, mobilize people, that could educate people, and then a grassroots revolution to happen rather than expecting the government to do anything? Nothing against the government. I believe the current government is doing what they are doing. But they're bound by constitution. They want to keep everyone happy. And you would see that if uh, they always have this internal struggle. So um, I think I lost the thought of my question, but I, I hope you got the gist of it. But yes, do you think? I think I get
0: it, but it's like this. Um, government or the state is the vehicle for nation to rise. I mean, if, if the state is an obstacle, it has to be you know. It, it has to be changed. It has to be transformed from being an obstacle. So the, let us say, ICHR, I understand where it currently stands, but where, what I was trying to suggest was once this government came, they tried to put the people there, uh, right people at the top. Whether they are right or not, is, I mean, we can debate about it, but they showed that intent. Now the right men are not there because there is not enough knowledge that is generated even they can't do much. Let us say, ICHR, uh, when it is talking of history, it's not just history, historiography itself is an enterprise in hegemony. So, if we have to create a narrative of our past, it has to be an atheistic narrative. It cannot be a historiography narrative of linear chronology. So, this whole philosophy that has to change and somebody knowledgeable enough to get into ICHR. Now, there are two problems there. One is the man with knowledge. Who has enough vision to say this is how your roadmap to building our narrative should be there? The second problem is the executive capability for him to realize this thing. Those two are diverse today. It's a learning curve. We are still learning the ropes. We can't do it unless people with practical experience and also this knowledge are going to get into this position. And
2: I mean,
0: it will happen, but. As it stands today, I mean, that has, in fact, been my consistent uh, criticism against the movement also that by the time you get power, you don't have the right man. And that is because you have not done the homework. Had you done the homework of creating your own drafts of textbooks, you should not wait for six years. You could have done it in 2015 itself. So the problem is, again, knowledge. And knowledge has to be done uh, as a silent homework. Knowledge generation cannot be done after the will is manifested. So that's my, in fact, I agree (laughs) that primary problem is there, but then it's not definitely because the will is not there at the top or anything. Even if the people at the top have the complete will, they are not in a position to do, they will not be in a position to do unless we have that knowledge. And knowledge generation is not a one-day thing. We need to. We are very late, and we need to start. Otherwise, what happens now? People are. A lot of people have already started saying civilization state. So after a nation state, we pick up a civilization state. We are always in a catch-up mode, copy-paste mode. We are not synthesizing anything of original of our own. Uh, Sunita
4: Shetharanji has written in agreement to this that we need to develop more non-bureaucratic institutions because she says the problem of stubble burning exactly arose because it was the bureaucrats who wanted to collect revenue from the waste management companies. Rahulji, you have something to say?
1: No, nothing. I just think very powerful um, insights uh, towards the end. We do want to uh, just want to share with uh, the very few audience who are here. We have a project called ICHSR, Indian Council for Historical and Sociological Research. It has just basically just two people who are sort of uh, part-time who we are funding. Uh, They're actually writing the entire curriculum of our history textbooks from class 6 to 10 uh, right now. And we're hoping to find some collaboration with other institutions. So just wanted to share that. Uh, This is small work that is going on. Just one historian and one uh, PhD, uh, who uh, a doctorate who works with NCRT or used to work with NCRT. And so they're both. But but we have to find ways of building such uh, knowledge systems, uh, Shankarji. I think offline we need to maybe connect and uh, build up a little bit of a strategy plan and then see how to go about finding the people and the funds to uh, enable some of this knowledge building work and sort of not leave it to the government or the for the people in power affiliated power centers